Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Well, start health and sick to fit. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a real and responsible life. So today's conversation is one that I waited a long time to have so that I could publish it for the world. It's with Ron Tibbs. Ron has become a good friend. He is one of our stalwart Wellstart Health coaches, and he has an amazing journey of transformation that goes far beyond the usual journey of transformation, which is from sick to healthy and fit. Uh, Ron was a Marine. He was a cop. And now he's a coach. And... <laughs> Embedded in those three different avocations is a giant range of shifts, of changes, of perspective that I think you're going to find fascinating as we as we go in and explore them. And this is not solely about the healing power of plants, although, of course, they do play a starring role in Ron's recovery and transformation. But it really is about the human spirit and where he found himself and how he self-medicated for a long time and how he finally developed an understanding and a protocol and an approach to life that did not require that kind of self-medication. And I think there's a lot of lessons here because obviously we have police forces and military and they're not going away and arguably they can serve useful purposes. But as, as I point out early in our conversation, I have a deep distrust of that kind of dominator authority in general. And so it's beautiful to kind of play with this idea with Ron of like, what could these cultures look like if they were informed by health and life and self-love and love for others and love for the planet, uh, as opposed to the kind of dominator cultures that we often see right now. Before we get to it, a couple of quick things. First of all, the Josh Howey retreat to NOLA, to New Orleans, Louisiana, the first weekend in March is about half full. So if you are interested in participating in that, it's going to be such a rocking good time. And you're going to meet a whole new family that's going to support you on your journey. And Josh is just an amazing host. 
And if you want to find out more about that, just go to Sick2Fit. That's the Sick, Sick2, the number two, Sick2Fit.com slash NOLA, N-O-L-A, all lowercase. And you can read about it and sign up for a enrollment interview so that we make sure we get the right folks on the ground in NOLA March 5th through 8th. We're looking at a whole bunch of other retreats coming up over the course of the year. Um, so if this weekend doesn't work for you, don't despair. There will be others. We're looking at uh, another couple in North Carolina, uh, one in um, a fishing camp near New Orleans, and actually starting to look internationally, uh, possibly uh, South Africa in connection with one of their epic races. Uh, either Comrades or Two Oceans or even uh, Run the Berg in September. So keep an eye out for all that information. Second thing is, if you are ready to attack 2020 uh, on all cylinders and you'd like some help, I have two slots available for private one-on-one unlimited laser coaching for an entire year. The price will shock you if you've ever priced out coaching, especially uh, one-on-one coaching, especially one-on-one coaching with someone who is well-trained and experienced and knows what they're doing. So if you want to find out more about that, check out plantyourself.com slash laser. That's L-A-S-E-R, all lowercase, for a year of unlimited laser coaching, short sessions that you won't constantly be uh, rescheduling because you're busy or something else has come up. These are 15-minute increments, as many as you like. We agree on the homework together. And people have gotten really good results with this. It's my my favorite type of coaching. And again, plantyourself.com slash laser. All right, let's get to today's conversation. Without further ado, Ron Tibbs, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks, Howard. Good morning. Let's let's just maybe start by <laughs> telling telling your story, you know, just the, the cliff notes so we have a jumping off point. Well, I guess... Uh... Um, you know, early mid sixties kid, um, born in 64, small town in Southern Ohio, modest town, probably about 70,000 population, I guess. Um, oh, can, typical you, can, kid. You, can you name the town? Yeah. Middletown, Middletown, Middletown Ohio. Okay, Cause I know Ohioans Ohio. will all want to know like what town. Yeah, yeah. It's between Cincinnati and Dayton, which unfortunately makes me a lifelong Cincinnati Bengals fan. And that's just something you, you can't get rid of. So I carry that burden with me everywhere I go. Oh, no. All right. So middle, Middletown. Yeah. Middletown, Ohio. Um, it was just kind of a blue collar town. Uh, we had a big steel mill there, Armco Steel and some paper companies, paper factories. So that was, uh, you know, those were the, the bones of the city. And uh, so, we, you know, you grew up being a kid, you know, running around barefoot, playing football in the parking lots and uh, climbing trees and and doing all those silly things and just the typical Midwestern life. And being in that uh, town, it was, you know, I, I felt stifled. I think I was lucky enough to be able to travel when I was younger. I was uh, 12 and 13 and I was able to leave the country and go to Panama, the Panama Canal Zone to visit family who happened to be stationed down there. And uh, I think that kind of sparked something in me that uh, said, hey, there, you know, there's more to life. There's more to the world. So as I got older, I was sort of starting to feel claustrophobic being there. And I joined the Marines right out of high school and was, was really good and got to travel. And- Wait, you joined the Marines <laughs> right out of high school? 
Well, Does, yeah, a few months after yeah, I graduated, and so, I mean, so I mean, part of the re part of the reason I want I'm so interested in this conversation with you is I, you know, you mentioned like this is going to be your therapy session. It might be mine as well because you know to 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 foreshadow you also have been a cop. And like those two professions, military and police, like I have a lot of baggage around, <laughs> right? Like I, I grew up in a, you know, my father was a labor organizer based, you know, just just uh, right of anarchist. And, okay. you know, he'd been he'd fought in World War II. Um, so he was a you know, he was a vet, but he didn't have much love for the military then yeah. or or later. Um, so you mentioned you'd gone down to Panama to visit family who were in the service. Were you, were you from like a military family? Was this considered like an honorable, obvious thing to do? No, the my uh, grandmother, my mother's mother, uh, her brother was in World War II. He was in the Navy, and my uncle um, was in the National Guard during Vietnam. I guess that was his uh, his ticket out. Um, so those are the only other two people um, that. Uh, that were in the military in our family. So, exactly. but, for, but free, like, were, were your folks like happy or shocked? Was this like, where did the decision come from? Yeah, it was actually, I joined without my mother knowing. My, I, I kind of grew up in a single family home. Um, my mother and, and uh, the man she was married to when I was born, uh, they divorced when I was probably about two, I guess, two and a half. And I met him again when I was 13, uh, mm. which is another part of the story uh, that kind of started my uh, professional life of alcoholism and, and uh, or alcohol abuse in, in the wrong time. So we can get into that a little bit later. But um, so, yeah, I, again, politics was probably something we shared. My mother was very active in, in the political scene of uh, ERA, the women's rights movement. I was, you know, commonly found with her at events and on marches. And so and I'm, I'm grateful for that upbringing is that I, I was sort of raised maybe a little differently than some of the people I went to school with. And I was very open minded. I was very accepting of people, um, you know, so I this the things that are going on in the world today are very painful and very disturbing for me. So, you know, how people can be that way. So when she learned that I did join the, the Marine Corps, she was pretty floored. Um, uh -huh. She wasn't necessarily anti-military, but she clearly had other things she would have uh, probably preferred that I do with my life. And I think it was uh, maybe a little rebellion trying to just to get out of there and to get the opportunity to, to travel and, and sort of just be something that I wasn't. I, it was sort of calling. I, I just felt comfortable with the idea of, of being of service. And now mm -hmm. that I see where I am in life, it, it's certainly something that I feel more grounded in is if I'm doing something where I'm in service to others. Mm -hmm. I just feel, I don't know, I just feel better about it all we're so were, were you like were you a tough kid like scrappy getting no, no. in a fight standing up for yourself well, i was wiry i was a little kid uh -huh. i graduated high school i think i was 510 weighed about 135 pounds so yeah i was a skinny little kid i had more hair than i had body i think <laughs> so you know the, the nice feathered hair in the 70s was uh, uh -huh. so yeah it was totally something that if someone would have looked at me and said, you joined the Marine Corps, I was like, yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, why Marines? I, some of the guys I worked with, I had a, a job, part-time job at a grocery store, stocking shelves and bagging groceries uh, my senior year of high school. And two of them were in the, in the reserves, Marine reserves. So just to hear them talk about it and the stories mm -hmm. and, you know, that I got this sense of uh, 
camaraderie and you know this kinship that they felt in their boot camp stories for whatever reason just kind of intrigued me. Mm. I was like the idea of going into boot camp for 13 weeks and, and being beaten and kicked and, and just humiliated and, and <sighs> treated like a total slug just appealed to me for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> and now we have Wellstart. <laughs> exactly. We uh, should we should add another week. Make it uh, make it more marine like. Give it give it a, a first week of Hell Week. This is what's going to happen. You're going to stop eating cheese. You're going to stop drinking milk. No more meat. <laughs> Carrots only. Yeah. So. I like that. I like having a Hell Week. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, what was uh, the Marines like? Did it did it live up to your expectations? You know, it was. Boot camp is what it was. I went to Paris Island, uh, which we, we call the real boot camp. Uh, South Carolina, sand fleas in the, in the spring and summer. So uh, it, it was difficult. I'm not going to say it was a cakewalk, but it certainly wasn't what I expected it to be. It was, it was easier than, than I expected it to be. But I think, and I think part of that was mindset. I sort of had, um, I knew what to expect, so maybe I had built it up to be much more than it was. And, the, and you know, the attitude uh, was changing a little bit in the early 80s at that point about conduct and the treatment of recruits. I think um, there were some stories that had gotten out about abuse and, and uh, some serious injuries and even deaths. So the mm. commanders, of course, were paying a little more attention to that. So, so maybe every- I, I got in on the tail end of all the rough stuff and kind of breezed through, so... So everybody wasn't being Lou Gossett Jr.? No, well, yeah, it was sort of like that. But uh, So it was, it was a nice experience. I grew a lot, both um, uh, emotionally and mentally and physically, of course. I put on a lot of weight and uh, had a little bit of a growth spurt. So when I graduated, I was still thin as a rail, but I, I felt that I was uh, much more fit and, and uh, a little more self-assured than I had been. And that just comes with the pride of knowing that you accomplished what very few people have been able to accomplish, you know, and that's to earn that, that Eagle Globe and anchor. And, um, so having that, uh, really helped, I think, uh, move me forward with. Mm-hmm. So then what did you, what did you do in the Marines? I was a military policeman. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had some secondary jobs. I was also a marksmanship instructor. Um, I taught uh, rifle and pistol and combat shotgun, um, uh, things on, on our combat training range for our military police training. And I uh, had done some secondary FBI sniper training through a course when I was stationed at uh, Camp Pendleton and did some competitive rifle and pistol shooting uh, in division, intramural and division matches. So I had, had a lot of little things going on and wow. deployed a lot, too. Uh-huh. I had field operations. Now you have two different jobs. When you're a military policeman, you can be stationed at base where you do like regular city police work, you know, street patrols and responding to calls. Then you also have the combat side or the, the war games, as we say, side of military police work where you deal with route reconnaissance and convoy escorts. Um, you can do POW camps and processing. Uh, one of the units I was attached to during uh, Gulf, uh, the Desert Storm, the Gulf War, um, we did advanced airfield security. So we provided security for um, smaller airfields like for the uh, AH-1 Whiskey attack, uh, Cobra helicopters. So we were uh, camp security and convoy escorts and route reconnaissance and things uh, for that purpose. Mm-hmm. So 
I got to travel a lot. I was on an aircraft carrier for 10 months. Um, station, I was assigned to the Master at Arms Office, which is the Navy's equivalent of military police. I was a command investigator for about 10 months on the Coral Sea and the Med and got to see a lot of you know, countries over there. So it was a really great experience. Yeah, sounds sounds like it. So um, when, how long were you in the Marines? Nine years. And it was actually, it's funny you mentioned your father. He was a World War II vet and didn't really have a lot of love for the military. And I think depending on your job and how long you're in, and I, I find that some of the guys that I was stationed with, they still really have a lot of love for the Marine Corps. And I don't dislike it. I don't. I dislike the way the military is being used now. It's not right. a defensive organization. Right. Department right. defense is more offensive, and it's and that's what bothers me with it. Um, but what, I think once you are put in a situation like with Desert Shield, Desert Storm, you you kind of have it's a big eye opener. It's all you want to do. You train. Oh, gung ho, hurrah! Let's go. You know, let's go to war. We gotta. You know, this is what we train for our whole lives. Let's go put ourselves to the test. And when you get into that environment, then it's like, what the hell am I doing here? Really? Um, and it was kind of a joke, to be honest. The unit I was attached to, we were in country the first two weeks before we had ammunition for everybody, for our rifles. Um, so uh, we could spend an hour talking yeah. about the fiasco, uh-huh. my experience there. Well, just to I'm, say I, that you gain, a, yeah. you gain a new perspective on things and you say, okay, this really isn't what I thought it, it was supposed to be. I don't feel the way I thought I was going to feel. And uh, it was that yeah, see that 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 uh, forced me or made me look at okay, I really don't want to do this anymore, which yeah. is why I decided to leave the Marines. Mm. See, I really, I really, you know, the people I know who have been warriors, in you know, in the classical sense of of, <laughs> of the word, in terms of making themselves as good and strong as possible, and defending those who cannot defend themselves and being willing to go into harm's way for an ideal and developing a band of of kinship with the others, like no one left behind and and that like like those people really inspire me. And the same time, like what I remember from my father is eventually he became a, a, a a member of the Board of Governors of Rutgers University, and he was the the instigator and the sole vote in a resolution to ban ROTC because wow. because he felt that the the per- pursuit of um, of an education required questioning, free thinking, and that ROTC uh, was basically indoctrinating obedience and he felt they were incompatible. And so I'm curious, like you, this, you know, this kid of an ERA toting mom, you know, I remember that from like the late seventies, like, what do we want? ERA, when do we want it now? And all the, 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 the the ridicule and abuse that, you know, came to these, these uppity women. Yeah. Right. That I'm curious about you and, and knowing you now as a very iconoclastic thinker, did you have to give up or feel like you had to hide any of your own opinions in the in the interest of of military protocol of obedience? No. And boot camp was really good for that. I mean, that's that's what those 13 weeks were for, was to remove all of that, to, to remove as much of that free thinking and as much of that self-awareness that you might have in making you feel and think and breathe mission, whatever that mission is. And when you think about it, 
as, as a leader or commander in time of war, you have to be able to give an order and expect that is going to be taken care of. It's going to be obeyed immediately, instantly, without question. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I still remember a lot of those classes and a lot of those teachings and, you know, the word discipline and what that means and, and all of our general orders, you know, those things that you learn when you're 18, 19 years old, they're still here and I'm 55 years old. So that's how deeply ingrained that stuff becomes. It wasn't until I got a little bit older and then experienced some of that. And you kind of see in many cases how ridiculous it is. Now, I'm not saying that the organization or its purpose is ridiculous. It's just the way that the mission is carried out in many cases. It's, uh, you know, you've probably heard the term, uh, term FUBAR. I don't know if we're going to keep this uh, G-rated or not. Nah. I'll, 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 I'll well, use the F word, frigged up beyond all recognition, uh, you know, or snafu, situation normal all fucked up, basically. So yeah. a lot of that is true. And it's it's become the punchline in a lot of comedy, military comedy movies. And there is a, there is a little bit of reality to that. It's a lot of hurry up and wait and the way orders are passed down and the way the missions are planned and it, it can really just become ridiculous. And having seen that, I started to feel, you know what, this is just, this is just getting ridiculous. It, it's not who I am anymore. It's, it's not, I don't feel the same way about it. Now being of service, I, I felt that way and I just felt that I wasn't really being of service anymore. And I started to, it started to become, okay, this is more about me now. I'm just going to do my time. I'm going to take what I can from this experience. I'm going to use it for what I can use it for and then just get out and get a real job and, and make a little money. And, mm. and, uh, and, and a lot of it too was the things that they were forcing us to do still that we didn't have a choice about, like the medications or the inoculations or the injections or the pills that we were, were being forced to take that some uh, weren't even approved for human you know, use or human trial. So being a guinea pig no longer appealed to me as well. Mm. It's time to move on. Okay. So then what did you do after the Marines? So I took that, uh, I guess that whole macho, you know, meathead. Uh, and we kind of get back into life and in, in, in that whole attitude about Because eventually I think this should probably steer toward a little bit about lifestyle and, and who I had become versus who I am now, too. So. You know, that whole meat fueled and protein fueled and macho, manly, testosterone fueled life. Of course, I enjoyed being a military policeman. I enjoyed that, that type of life. And I transferred that to civilian law enforcement. So I left mm -hmm. the Marine Corps in 1992. I was stationed in South Carolina at the time. And uh, we moved out to the uh, San Francisco area where I had family. Uh, the Northern California Bay Area, and uh, started applying for for work there as a civilian police officer. Gotcha. And I was hired. I was hired by a county sheriff's office in uh -huh. the Bay Area. Okay. So, so the Marines uh, have uh, feed you a meat heavy diet. Yeah, yeah. The, the chow hall was. I mean, it's not just meat. It was a lot of cheese too. It was. It huh. was. Uh, you know, we had steaks. I don't know if you call it steaks. It was the thin cut meat that could have been shoe leather. Um, it was all just mass produced chow line stuff uh, in the mornings. You could go in and have an omelet, two, three, five, six egg omelet if you wanted with anything in it. Lots of cheese uh, in the, uh, lunch and dinner were burgers or pizza, you know, just mm -hmm. all the quick stuff, the frozen that could be heated or you know, a lot of desserts. They took care of us with all the desserts and cookies and cakes yeah. that we wanted. It was all made fresh right there in the chow hall. So how did they keep people in fighting condition? With with all of, the, with all that food was it was that a challenge? 
Well, you're still young for the most part. You know, most people, you know, you're in your late teens, early mid 20s. So your body still has that ability to recover. Whereas you start getting into your 40s and then you see as the, the older, the more senior ranks, those guys are slowing down. Those guys and gals are slowing down a little bit, maybe putting on a little bit of weight. And there was a lot of physical exercise, of course, you know, a lot of PT, physical training. We get up in the morning, we do our daily routine and we go for our three to five mile run, depending on where you were in your training evolution. Um, so, you know, you, your body was still mm-hmm. being kind of resistant for that. And you can get away with some of that. And what I feel now and how I feel now in my life, I always thought I was rather fit and I was healthy. And now I know I was not. I don't remember ever feeling, you know, this clean or this light or this, you know, um, I guess resilient is a good mm-hmm. word for it in, in my daily routine as I did in 19 years in uniform. So, you know, nine years in the Marine Corps, just under 10 years with the, with the sheriff's office. So it's incredible wow. how much you learn about that. Okay. So, um, you returned to civilian life, became a police officer in the Bay Area. And- yeah, I was with a sheriff's office in just south of San Francisco. Uh, I actually got hired to work. Uh, my first job was as a correctional officer. Uh, so I worked in the jails for a few months until we got to, uh, there was a group of, I guess, 11 or 12 of us that were hired together. And then we promoted to the rank of deputy and went to the police academy and, and then hit mm. the streets. And, and So was it different? Like, it sounds like your description of being a military police officer was a lot of support, a lot of sort of positivity, whereas now you're in law enforcement in California, you must be dealing with like crime and criminals and like the worst of, hu- of, of human nature. Yeah, the, the big difference was in the military, you had the uniform code of military justice as your hammer. So most Marines got it and, and they were fairly disciplined. You know, you, you go in the military and you kind of respect that. You respect the uniform, but alcohol always played a role in that. So that was the, our biggest challenge was just dealing with drunk Marines, Marines that were coming back from deployment or, you know, just having a hard time and, you know, breaking up fights at the enlisted man's club, you know, typical domestic uh, calls, uh, you know, uh, a lot of domestic, uh, I would say violence, but there was some, but arguments, you know, disenfranchised spouses who were just tired of all the games and the long hours. So things like that. Mm. Were you so were you cool. were you drinking at that point also? Oh, oh, absolutely. I started drinking when I was 13. Uh, so I can get back to that, that when I was reintroduced or introduced to the man who, you know, was introduced to me as my father. Uh, he worked at the steel mill that I talked about in, in Middletown. And mm. when he decided to come back into my life and it was our time to do father son time. We did what he would do on his, his off days, which was bowl on Thursday evenings and then go hang out in local bars. So at the age of 13 and 14, I was learning how to play pool and throw darts. I was drinking uh, Bacardi 151 and Coke with ice chips out of shot glasses. And that doesn't sound that doesn't sound legal. Beer. No, it was it was not legal, but it was fun. Yeah, so, you know, okay. here I am a young man and, and, you know, a teenager, not a young man even. I was still a, a child in, in these bars, smoke-filled bars, listening to 70s jukebox music and uh, learning how to play pool. even had my own pool cue when I was 15, and I had my own nickname in, in the community. So, wow. so they called me Middletown Little. Uh, wow. So um, did you, when you went into the Marines, did you, do you, did you have what you would consider now a drinking issue or problem? It was... Well, I guess we would call it very much social. 
course, in the Marine Corps, it got to be, you know, how much can you drink and still function the next day? So we would drink in the evenings, and then the next day we would get up hungover and go out for our runs. And we were stationed at Camp Pendleton, Southern California, and, and you know, in the heat of the summer, and you're out at you know, 7, 38 o'clock in the morning, and it's already very hot, and the sweat and the stench and, you know, running over puddles of vomit from the people in front of you that were hungover and clearing out the, their stomach contents, you know, so... It got to be a game, and we would play games with it uh, at parties. And, and so that, I think, was something It was uh, sort of what you would use. Okay, we're not at war, so we can't prove ourselves as, as Marines, so let's. how do we do that as in peacetime? Mm. And it would be with feats of you know, physical training or drinking or so know, it just being stupid. It wasn't drinking to like numb out the life you were leading. <clears throat> at the time, I didn't think it was. Um, we enjoyed it. We, have, we were having a great time. We got to travel. Mm-hmm. You know, we got the you know our war games and the whole bit. I think it was just entertaining. We enjoyed the high. We enjoyed you know the way we felt. We felt more invincible, of course, when you're drunk or stoned up you know, off your rocker. And then later, um, as a civilian police officer, we transitioned into yeah, this is real crime. This is real life. I was fortunate and unfortunate in a way to do a big portion of my street training in a small community called East Palo Alto. Uh, it used to be an unincorporated area of the county that I worked in and then incorporated. And it was largely a minority city. It was very small. It was about two and a half square miles. And its location in the peninsula uh, with a bridge coming in from the East Bay, Highway 101 coming up from the south from Silicon Valley and then straight north into San Francisco made it the perfect hub for gangs and drugs. Uh, you know, as, as a place for stopping point for, for crack and, and coke and heroin coming in from Mexico and from all these places to then be dispersed and then head out in, in their various directions. So there was a lot of a lot of drive by shootings in the early 90s. East Palo Alto was uh, named the murder capital of the United States per capita per population. So that's where I got my a lot of my street training. And I actually worked there for, for about 18, about 18 months. So I was sort of again thrown into the fire uh you know in that crucible and it was a big eye opener as i thought okay i'm a marine i can do all this i'm an mp and then it was like whoa okay this is real so i really had to try to keep a lot of that in check and and just understand that i don't know everything there is to know and eventually the the job um cost me uh, my second marriage this is where the stress and the reality of that came in i had several injuries that resulted, uh, that required surgeries to repair, the third of which was a back injury that ultimately caused my retirement. And were these and, from like altercations? Yeah, from pursuits and fights and, and chases. A knee, it blew my knee out chasing somebody, that following, a, he bailed out of a stolen car. Uh, then I had my hand and my wrist cut open, um, the knuckle and the joint and tendons exposed, you know, all the lovely mm-hmm. gory stuff. So, and actually, I, I think I experienced what some would call PTSD as a result of that, whereas I don't remember ever really having that while I was in the Marines, even during the mm-hmm. five and a half months, six months we were over in the, in the Gulf. Um, so dealing with the stress and, and you say, OK, this thin blue line, uh, you know, there's a, this brotherhood and this camaraderie that may be true in, in a lot of police departments. But I found that in the department that I was with, the office I was with. That locker room was a really hostile place. 
Um, it was a lot of, there were a lot of politics involved. It was a lot of backstabbing. You didn't want to be what we would call the goat of the week. If you screwed up, then everybody liked to talk about it. Mm. And you were sort of like ostracized a little bit. It took a while for you to get back in everybody's good graces. And of course, I had my screw ups and I took my turn at the, you know, on the calendars, go to the week. I, I think a lot of that too was people feeling that, hey, phew, it wasn't me this time. So let's let's go, you know, vent on the person that it was. Mm -hmm. So that sounds sounds kind of totally opposite to a marine culture. Yeah. In which was. which we're all in this Absolutely. together and we're gonna cover for each other. Absolutely. And we had and we had solo units. We didn't have a partner in the car with us. We were solo beat units. So I don't know if that fed into that a little bit. You're out there on your own. Of course you had beat partners. You had other cars that were worked the same areas that you worked, so you would go to calls together and back one another up. But in the locker room and, and kind of behind the scenes, it, it got a little nitpicky. It got a little in, you know. Mm -hmm. So bringing all of that on and and the added stress of the job and the reality. And, of course, you know, this is also early 90s. So we're talking post-OJ. We're talking the Rodney King and all the white police officers working in these large, uh, largely minority-based communities. We were all Mark Furman. So, you know, it, it was really tough for me having grown up the way I did and ex being um, you know, accepting of everybody, regardless of gender. And back then, of course, we didn't identify multiple genders or it wasn't as, as open and public as it is today. But race, certainly religion, all of those things to me were like, OK, it's just normal. We're just people. Let's just you know do what we have to do. And, you know, let's have a community in a neighborhood. So being thrust into that and the reality of like, OK, this is something I didn't expect. It was really tough. And bringing all of that on, the trauma, the injuries, um, and then, of course, once my back injury occurred, I was on light duty. I would go back to work, hurt it again, go back on light duty. So that reality of me maybe not being able to be a police officer anymore started to sink in. And, of course, the pain with the nerve damage in the back, I had a doctor who was very liberal with the prescription pad. You know, and not that he was doing anything illegal, but... I learned very quickly how to use that, use the system to build my own cocktails to numb myself. So I didn't drink while I was on duty. I certainly took advantage of my off days and my off hours. Uh, and then while I was on duty, the prescription pills uh, were were in play. And to, clearly, I'm surprised I'm not in I'm not in jail or I didn't kill somebody. I was there were times when I was barely able to stay awake behind the wheel of a patrol car working midnight shift way up in the north part of the county all by myself. And yeah, I certainly shouldn't have been on duty, let alone, you know, uh, driving a car. <clears throat> I don't know, should I be talking about this stuff? But yeah, so, so the alcohol, the, you know, the drinking from, from my teenage years then turned into the games and the fun and building that partnership and that family and the brotherhood and the Marine Corps then became my, my medication and my, uh, I guess, the numbing that I needed to get through you know, daily life and, and the crumbling of my marriage. And, and uh, so, yeah, it, it kind of all came to a head in, in, I guess, the late 90s, yeah, mid-late 90s. All of this really started to get heavy and I had to face my retirement. What am I going to do? Uh, this is who I am. You know, this wearing a badge was my reality. It's who I'd always been as an adult, and I didn't know what I was going to do afterwards. Okay, and this is this in, in like 2000. You were 36. Mm -hmm. So this is this is is this a normal age to retire? No, typically not. No, 
Uh, it, was, it was a medical disability retirement uh, because of the back. I could no longer mm. you know, do the job that was uh, required of me. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, if I doctor told me, look, if you hurt yourself again and you get in one of these fights again or you if I have to operate on you, then we're going to have to fuse your back. And I didn't want that. They'd already taken out part mm. of one of my discs. So I did everything I could to get to, to stay on the job. It just wasn't working. So having to face that, then it was like, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. So I, it's like, okay, well, now I'm a failure at this as well. You know, what, what, what comes next? Um, and you saw yourself until, as a failure because, oh, because you couldn't keep doing it. Yeah. yeah it absolutely. wasn't, it wasn't that you're, you didn't feel like a failure based on your performance, but on your inability to keep doing it. My performance did suffer quite a bit the last uh, year and a half, a uh, couple uh-huh. years. Of course, I was back and forth between light duty and, and, and street work. So, uh-huh. but yeah, uh, in my last, I guess, uh, I would say my last six months on patrol, um, I was really, really in bad shape. I would go to calls, like cold calls, uh, thefts or, uh, you know, somebody broke into my car, that type of thing, embezzlement, uh, I think a couple, and I would draw case numbers to do reports, but then I just didn't have the mental clarity, you know, because of the, the combinations of pills that I was taking to just focus and get the report done. So there was at one point, I think I was receiving, I received some uh, notices from our records department, like, hey, you've got like five outstanding reports that haven't been turned in yet. You know, uh-huh. why don't you like, get these done? So finally, my supervisors who, it, it's hard to believe that nobody knew. That's another thing is, you know, I did work around some raging alcoholics civilian police officers and they would come into work from the night before still reeking and just it seemed I don't know how these people are functioning I mean this would have put us to shame as Marines some of these guys some of the guys that are not some but there were a few probably that were using illegal mm-hmm. substances products one was for his use of methamphetamine so this is this is a reality. I wasn't the only one, of course. There, you know, we find our ways to medicate. We find our ways to to deal with this. And also, I was using food as well. You know, Burger King was my first stop and last stop, typically every day, in my car, the drive-through. So, right. and so at this point, know, I'm imagine, find, I imagine you're gaining weight because you you don't have absolutely. the marine exercises and you're yeah. you're physically unable to move like you were. Exactly. Yeah, I was putting on some weight. Um, certainly much more than I had ever carried. I was, you know, over 200 pounds, probably a two, 205, I think is about my average is about what I carried. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the job itself, walking around carrying the weight with the, um, you know, the gun belt, and the vest and all of that, you, you are moving some, so you, you're not totally sedentary until you hit the, like the desk jobs or the, you know, working mm-hmm. in the control center or the jail. Yeah. That kind of so I'm, I'm curious about, cause you, you mentioned you, know, you you joined up right after high school. You'd you'd been like really good at a bunch of technical skills, right? Like marksmanship. Um, did you think? And then you know, as a policeman, you your identity was around your ability to move and like be physically active. Did you think of yourself as smart, or you were just like, I have a body that can accomplish things, and when that's going, there's nothing to fall back on. Yeah, I, I felt I had some intelligence. Now, book smarts, am I the most intelligent guy in the room? No, but I had a lot of what I would think would be street smarts, just common mm-hmm. sense. Or if it were common, I guess everybody would have it. So normal sense or good uh-huh. sense. Uh-huh. Um, so 
And that served me well. And I, I was able to listen and, and learn and pick things up. I, I was very science-based, you know, evidence-based. So it was very easy for me to look at something and figure it out or, yes, that makes sense, or read. Uh, I, I really started to enjoy reading and, and would read a lot of things, the technical or law or, the, you know, about the Constitution and keep up on those things. So that came very easy to me. Um, it And for some reason that just didn't really strike me as, okay, well, well, let's just use your brain. You know, you can't be a cop anymore, so what else can you do? And instead of going that direction, I just lost all all faith in in who I was. I was completely lost, and then the drinking really picked up. Um, I, I, I got to that place at rock bottom where I would wake up in places I don't remember going to, um, not, not remembering yeah. how I got there with yeah. receipts in my pockets for cash withdrawals in the hundreds of dollars you know, card games, you know, at poker houses and you know things like that. Mm-hmm. So it was at that point that I said, okay, look, this is, this isn't serving anybody. It's not serving me. And that's when I decided that I needed to stop drinking. So what, what year was this? This was in uh, November of 99. I want to say the, uh, around the 20th of November. Okay. So, and at so, that point, at that point, did you have like friends or community or family around? Because I'm just hearing like so much soloness in terms of like yeah, driving alone and your marriage not, fell apart. Not like, really. Not really. Um, yeah, a couple of people that I talked to, um, you know, would stay in touch with family. My younger sister is actually who I turned to. She was living in the Bay Area at the time. And my at this point, my marriage was was pretty much over. It was just being, you know, the paperwork had to be finalized. I was also dealing with some really severe uh, depression, suicidal depression, um, which came to a head also after I'd stopped drinking. Of course, I didn't have that medication. You know, I I wasn't numbing myself to avoid all of the things that I was fearing in my future and the frustration from, you know, not feeling like I wasn't being taken care of by the department that I was retiring from. A lot of uh, self-loathing, a lot of why me, you know. Kind of, and I would put this on, oh, eh, but you know, there's a reality to that, and, and I don't want to try to belittle that, you know, th- that level of depression. There, mm-hmm. there are some real things there that are going on that make us look at it in a way of this is happening to me. You know, why is this happening to me? Instead of yeah. looking at it and saying, okay, I am still in control. Yeah, I was nowhere near the ability to recognize that. Yeah, I'm I ended up in the hospital um, for the suicidal depression to be evaluated for all of that. So. It's not yeah. good when you're when you're a police officer and you're facing, uh, you know, these depressed feelings and you still have your your gun. It, uh, you know, it's They'll not also, a good recipe for for longevity. <laughs> it sounds a little nihilistic. Yeah. So um, in a way, it, it, the the retirement was I at the time I felt was the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. And looking back, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It took me out of that environment that was destroying me emotionally, that had ruined those personal aspects of my life that had ruined my ability to function in a, in a society of others that who were not police officers. There was very little of that. You're, it's sort of like this tribe mentality. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be around a cop because even if you're with somebody, uh, typically when you meet a police officer, it's because something bad has happened, whether you've done it or it's happened to you. Mm -hmm. So that whole reality of, uh, you know, no one wants to be around that energy. So, 
having left that environment was the best thing that, that could have happened to me. It allowed me to face these demons and to get through all of these issues and to learn how to deal with the depression and to find healthier ways other than alcohol, drugs, and food to medicate myself. So I'm very mm. grateful that it happened now in the end. Mm. So I know, you know, fast forward, I know that it was like 2012 or 2013 when you made your health journey. So what, what, what was in those intervening 12 years between 1999 and when you, you know, sort of hit rock bottom health wise? Yeah, so I got got rid of the alcohol. And a little bit later, I was I managed to get to stop uh, abusing the prescription pad, um, felt ways I, I found mm. ways to manipulate and, and alleviate the pain. I had a, a doctor through Kaiser, who my psychiatrist, who finally, after a couple of weeks, two and a half weeks or so of listening to me whine and just break down in these sobbing panic attacks in her office, I guess just saying the same things over and over. One day she just set down her pencil, took her glasses off, and she just looked at me and said, so what? I just looked at her and was like, excuse me? She said, so what? And I was like, okay, well, this is a new approach. You know, aren't you supposed to be my advocate here? You're supposed to be, you know, taking care of me and telling me that the world's going to be okay. And she's like, look, can you change any of this? What do you have control over? And it that those two words, so what, were so profound to me. And it that was the, the, the major turning point for me to get back to where I was emotionally and to and just to start enjoying life again. It was that she was right. So what? Who cares? Mm. Stop crying about it and fix it. If you can change it, change it. If you can't then it's done. The only reason it's still bothering you is because you choose not to forget about it. You choose to dwell in this moment. And while it was still very real and painful for me, all of these things I was dealing with, and this betrayal and all these things, she was absolutely right. It was ridiculous for me to stay in this world that was trying clearly to push me out. Mm. It was trying to force me away, and I didn't want to let go. So when I finally got to that point, it was like, ah, revelation. So then it became, all right, I don't need to drink anymore. I, I've been, you know, sober for what it's been, I guess, uh, 20 years this year. Yeah. So that's great. And, you know, I'm, I'm straight edge and the whole bit, but it was food. Mm -hmm. So life still had some things for me to learn clearly about myself. So then I turned to more food and I love to cook and it was all the decadent stuff and all of course, meat, mm -hmm. steaks, barbecuing. So all were, the things you, were, that we were you working for? Were you working at this point or were you on disability? No, I was, yeah, I, I took my retirement and I was able to function. I'm able to function. I eventually became an athlete. Um, you know, it's just as long as I use good body mechanics, I'm not out there burning up the track or anything, but I have my, I have my physical health, which I'm very mm -hmm. grateful for. But I, I just chose to kind of just be a slug and just enjoy my retirement. I adjusted mm -hmm. my life to fit within the means of my income. And then it was in 2004, uh, my 40th birthday, I topped out. I was, I guess, technically obese by height and weight. One month later, I took a life insurance physical and failed it. And which, of course, was the, you know, the last thing you expect to happen to get a call from your insurance agent who said, uh, you know, hey, Ron, we're, we're not going to approve your life insurance and you should probably go see a doctor. Mm which was, you know, the so, last thing. I so so a, a bean counter with a calculator has decided that you're not that they don't want to bet on you living for 15 years. That, yeah, that was it. So I thought, OK, well, what's the deal? I said, well, because of patient confidentiality, they couldn't really give me a lot of details. Uh, and if I had to guess, I'd say there's something wrong with your liver. I thought, oh, man, 
I haven't, I haven't had a drink in five years. Uh, you know, what's going on? All this drinking from the age of 13 is just, this is it. This is how I'm going to go. So I went to see my doctor and she followed up with more blood tests. And then she sent me to, uh, the regional cancer center for more testing. I thought, Oh, this isn't good. So they, three weeks of testing and liver biopsy and lung tests and blood tests. And I was a lab rat for a while, had symptoms for several chronic conditions, a hemochromatosis, which is a genetic liver disease, which I had part of the genetics for, but didn't actually have the disease. Polycythemia vera, which is a form of blood cancer. They thought I had because I had symptoms of that, but I didn't actually have it. I did have uh, fibrosis or scar tissue in my liver, which was considered, it's called NASH, non-alcoholic steohepatitis, uh, which is um, mm -hmm. stage three of four stages of liver health. And the doctor told me, no, it's not your drinking. He said, if you haven't had anything to drink for five years and your liver's been able to recover from that, this is something else. Okay, well, what is it? We don't know. And this is in the early 2000s before the pharmaceutical industry got a hold of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NASH is what I was diagnosed with, which you actually have the scar tissue starting to, your liver starting to die. Mm. And so they said, we're, there's really nothing we can do for you. We can just follow it. We'll draw blood, keep an eye on your liver markers, on your liver enzyme. Um, and in probably maybe 10 years, you could develop primary liver cancer or you're probably need a liver transplant. So, okay. Mm. Were there, was, was there anything to medicate you with? No. Well, he said there was, there was a new drug. It was in trials. It was for diabetes that they could prescribe. It was also being looked at. As, so clearly there was a, a connection between food or diabetes type, um, you know, development and the liver at the time, whether it be gallbladder, liver, and, and all of those processing organs there. And he said, I don't recommend that we do that. I said, no, I'm not in the mood to take pills. Uh, I had been mm -hmm. diagnosed with hypertension, you know, while I was a police officer and prescribed a couple of meds for that and stopped taking them after about six months because I didn't like the way I felt. So I just, I wasn't a big uh, pro pharma guy at the time. So yeah, so about that, uh, about that time frame, um, you know, I actually in 2006, I had moved to Thailand. I just wanted to travel again. I got that bug. So I was living on a small island in the Gulf of Thailand down south, um, living in a little bungalow in the, in the secondary rainforest, scuba diving. I'd spent, you know, three, four days a week on the boat. My diet had changed and I'd lost a lot of weight. Um, I was feeling better, but I didn't make the connection. I was your, eating, diet, your diet changed because you were in Thailand and you were eating when, more what? traditional foods. Yeah. Now, I didn't I wasn't a vegan and, and I still had pizza every now and then, but I was eating a lot more fruit for breakfast. Um, I was eating, you know, fewer eggs, almost zero egg. Uh, so, yeah, fruits and smoothies for breakfast. With, and then for lunches, I would have they had these baked potatoes. They called jacket potatoes with like um, a chili sauce on it that had maybe a little bit of minced pork. So certainly my meat sizes where the plate would be, you know, the mm -hmm. slab of meat with a couple of small sides. It was flipped. So I had lost some weight in the five, five and a half months I was there. But I didn't make the connection. You know, think, okay, I'm swimming. I'm a little more active than I was. I'm just, you know, enjoying life. Left there, moved to Sweden. When I connected with uh, Jeanette, my wife, after having, you know, not um, been in, con in contact with her for many years. And once I got to Sweden, then it was right back into what I was eating before: a lot of meat, 
and she oh. was a complete dairy hound. The Swedes are, they just love their dairy. Love Wait, their so she, she was your, your ex-wife at that point? No, 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 no. She, she, oh, this is, yeah, this is another story too. I met her in 1989 when I was in the Marines. Okay. And I was in the Mediterranean on an aircraft carrier. She was working on Mallorca, which is a, an island off the coast of Barcelona, Spain. She was a hostess in a club greeting people at the door. Uh, we were there on a, is a port of call for our ship. We were a bunch I of see. us in uniform. So you, so just, you just met, met and developed a relationship. And yeah, we, we talked for like four days. We were in port. She was working. So it was just like, hey, how you doing? What's your name? Okay, can we come in? Sure, let's dance. We exchanged a few written letters uh, while I, I was on the ship. And then that was it. We were done. She gotcha. found me on the internet, you know, 17 years later in late 2005. Um, and so that was when I was getting ready to move to Thailand. Gotcha. So it was like one of these universe, the universe has conspired to close doors. You're ready to leave and then open a new door. And now we reconnect and we're married and have been together for 13 years and life is great. So, so when I reconnected with her, I was on my way to Thailand. She was back in Sweden at the time and she said, Hey, we'll come and visit. So I did and ended up moving there. So the, the, the healthier food that I was eating, you know, the, the, the more fit that I'd become again, the weight that I had lost slowly then from 2006 mm -hmm. to 2012, put it all back on and then some. And uh, in, in October of 2012, I would say that I was probably circling the bottom, bottom of the bowl. Uh, my body was shutting down. I was obese. I was not sleeping well. I was very lethargic. I felt hungover all the time. I couldn't think. A lot of you know, just a lot of fog. I was getting uh, very severe eye infections that would cause a pussy discharge, and my eyes would swell shut for two and three days, which was causing cluster migraine headaches. I had really severe red rashes under my arms. I would probably maybe compare to diaper rash, just mm. like this. So this is this is this is the fulfillment of that pro that liver prophecy. Exactly. So this is this is where my body now is shutting down. And the only thing I'd been able to do over those years was to have a physical once a year and say, yes, your liver enzymes are still high. Yes, your ferritin is still high. Yes, your red blood cell count is still way too high. Yes, your lungs are screwed. They only work at 85 percent capacity. You're not getting enough oxygen in your body. So all of these things were still there and those numbers were slowly climbing. And I had not had a physical in, in uh, Thailand. So I don't know if those numbers had dropped with my weight, but I would, if I had to guess, I would say, yes, they probably did. And the doctors in Sweden, of course, they, it was the same story. There's really nothing we can do for you. We don't understand what's going on. And I thought, well, you know, I've been through a lot in my life. Um, nine years in the Marine Corps, almost 10 years as a cop, uh, six months in desert storm and streets of East Palo Alto. And I am not going to check out on a farm in the country in Sweden like this. You know, so Google was my friend and uh, I didn't have any expectation. I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know what to expect. I had no mission other than to, you know, how can I fix my liver? How can I stay alive? And um, forks over knives. So what did what do you remember what you typed in the search bar? Like, you know, I, I can't. I think it was um, healing, healing your liver. How can I heal my liver or. Um, I think I don't know if I was subconsciously making the connection between food. Now we, my wife and I talked about, I needed to lose weight clearly. And she had put on a little bit of weight since our wedding too. And she'll be the first to admit that. 
um, she hadn't gained nearly the weight that I had. So I think maybe there was a component in that as well. And part of that search was looking for ways to lose weight or get healthy or, you know, so the forks over knives popped up. I think I ignored it maybe the first or second time I saw it looking for other things. Um, and then when I finally started to read the synopsis and it, this is on Netflix, we got to watch this and we watched it together and we just, I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. I was blown away. But now, as I recall, there's nothing in Forks Over Knives specifically about liver, right? So how did Absolutely not. So I, and I didn't know that, okay, is this going to work for me? It just made sense. And having that scientific background, having that ability to listen to, to um, you know, information. And then I took that first viewing and the people that we saw, you know, Rip Esselstyn and Dr. Esselstyn and, and T. Colin Campbell and you know, all of the, all of the people that you've worked with for all these years and the books that you've helped them write. And okay, I need to find out who these people are. Are they legitimate? Are these quacks? You know, what is this? And the, the deeper I got into that and finding their YouTube videos and their Ted talks and all of their books and their publications, it just made sense. So for the next three weeks or so, I just dove into this and became my full-time job. I said, okay, is this legit? Is this complete crap? We watched Forks Over Knives again, and then we found Joe Cross, you know, fat, sick, and nearly dead, and watched his, oh, juicy, man, yeah, we got to do that. That sounds great, you know. So what it, what it all came down to is we, we said, okay, this seems legit. If this is going to work, then this is what we need to try. If it works, great. If not, then we'll find something else. So we decided to overnight. So that October, I gutted the kitchen. We emptied our pantry. We got rid of everything that was processed and refined, no more animal products. Went to the farmer's markets and the market, and that was it. We haven't looked back. Mm. And uh, within nine weeks, it was, I think, nine and a half weeks. It was that following, uh, I guess it was late December, early January. I had a, had a scheduled physical already. And I went to that physical having been 100% plant-based, very clean, um, for that time. And all of those biomarkers in my blood that showed that I was unhealthy were all in the normal to low normal range. Mm. How long did it take you from when you made that clean break with the old way of eating? Did you know in your body that things were improving? <clears throat> what did you notice? I was miserable for the first week. Um, <sighs> probably 10 days, I just felt like crap. And I don't know if that's because I just had all of this fat that I was cramming into my body, finally being able to hit my bloodstream and leave. Um, I, you know, people say a detox, I, I don't know, your body detoxes every day, as I understand it. So I, I don't know what it was. And my taste buds were changing. Um, so uh, did you did you look upon that as evidence it, of that it was working or that it wasn't? I was, I, I didn't have any thought really either way. I just thought, okay, I, even for me as, as poorly as I had felt, as bad as I was feeling in the condition I was in to then say, man, I, I don't feel well. This is like weird. I, I didn't know what to think about it, good or bad, but I was committed to it. I wanted to see what was going to happen. And having read stories from other people who, you know, who had shared their transitions and had talked about it, I remember there were several accounts of, you know, you're going to feel like crap for a little while, stick with it, be patient. And then one day I woke up and it was like, I felt rested. I guess this was a couple weeks in, maybe I woke up, I was like, wow, okay, I have a clear head this morning. This is incredible. I don't, I don't remember feeling this way for such a long time. Mm. And in, in five and a half months, 
I had dumped 65 pounds. I had all this energy that I never remember having as an adult, even as a young adult in the Marine Corps, when you think you've got all this energy, you still have the recovery issues. You still have the, you know, of course I was drinking a lot. So there was a lot of hangover at play there. I think if I had probably been a little less accustomed to the beer bottle, I would have felt better. But having now this new profound reality, you know, it's like, this is incredible. This is just okay. This is a good start. I don't want to get too excited about this. I've had things come back and be a mm-hmm. big disappointment. And it just never, it never changed. It continued to get better. The weight loss, the weight melted off. This is the winter time now in Sweden. So there was no exercise. There was no out running. And, and, and it was just walking the dog a couple times a day, you mm-hmm. know, for 15 minutes. And it was just incredible that the shift and, and the mental shift. I felt so much better about. Of course, you know, you're healthier, so you feel better about life, but it allowed me to just have a clearer head and to just see, okay, you know what, this is, this is information that everybody needs to hear. So that euphoria Mm. over that first month, that first month and a half and the weight loss. And after that five, six months, I got very angry, (sighs) kind of turned, okay, why didn't my doctors know this? Why did I have to get to the point that I had over those eight, nine years of misery, you know, this roller coaster of weight loss, weight gain, and, and not right. feeling good You're about right. it. And, and during that time, you were doing all the right things, right? You stopped, you stopped doing all the things that were obviously hurting you: the alcohol, exactly. the pills. Yeah. You, were, the you were like you were you were a poster child for like a healthy Western person eating Western. Completely straight edge, cut out caffeine, you know, uh, it it was just incredible. And here I am now. I paid my dues in life. You know, why are you doing this to me now? And it was the food. All the things that I had been doing with the alcohol and the pills, I was doing with the food. Not that I was really running from, I I was very happy. Life was good. I was retired. I was living on a farm in southern Sweden, you know, the beautiful countryside. So emotionally, and and, and the things that I had in life were all there. It was all perfect now. And then the health, but it was the eating, the foods I was eating and the quantities to which I was throwing them down my throat. Uh, you know, I, that was just normal. That was just the way we all ate. Yeah. So it was. So what did, what did you do with your with your outrage? Yeah, I, I was very angry. I thought, OK, this is something that everybody needs. So immediately I started shouting from from my little soapbox from my little rooftop at my family to start with and my close circle. And they all looked at me like, yeah, OK, great for you. I'm happy you lost the weight. Leave me alone. You know, I enjoy my pork chops. I enjoy my, you know, my holiday roasts every day kind of thing. So uh, I just do research. I took the course with uh the uh, T. Colin Campbell's course through Cornell University for the plant-based certificate in plant-based nutrition and uh, just started finding smaller groups on Facebook, reaching out to people. Uh, Forks Over Knives uh, contacted me, their editor, and asked if I'd be willing because I had posted on a couple of comments, I guess, and uh, shared shared a little bit about my story. They contacted me and wanted to know if they could you know, do a, a write-up. I said, absolutely. I, you know, my, my story can help even one person. That's great. So then I, I started to feel this, this calling again, like I felt when I was interested in becoming a Marine or becoming a police officer it was like, okay, this is a way for me to serve again. So this, you know, I, I feel comfortable with the idea of putting myself out there and, and being there for other people. If it's just one person, a small group of people. 
Mm, it's a different type of vulnerability than putting your body on the line in East Palo Alto and and putting your story and all its all its yeah, rawness that, and ugliness. It, it took me a while to to be comfortable with that the first person that I was really able uh, really able to open up to um, and share a lot of what I had gone through as as a teenager and a child and the, and the drama at home and and that energy and the the not traditional relationships within the family and a single parent, single mother, you know, family in the sixties and seventies. So all of those things that, that turned me into who I was as a young man. And then, you know, the first person that I felt comfortable sharing any of that with was Jeanette. And when we got back together again, I said, okay, this is me. And I just, it was like a torrent, like a, a hurricane. I just <laughs> unloaded on her everything about my life, everything I'd done, every, everything I, the people I had been, over the years, you know, and she was still sitting there when I was done. So I thought, okay, well, she accepts me, so that's cool. And so it was all great, you know. And so then having now this, being in this position of being able to share parts of that with people who had or were currently in or maybe trying to transition from those places in their lives was very appealing to me. So I felt, okay, yeah, I, I've dealt with a little bit of that. Now, I'm not comparing our stories. I never want to compare what I went through with anybody else. My story is no worse or no better than anybody's. It's ours. It's our journey. We, we deal with that. And being able to learn that and understand, yes, I've been there to some extent. This is what worked for me. Or, you know, let's find the answer together. It was a different, it was a different sort of service. It wasn't I'm coming in to fix a problem as a cop. Mm -hmm. You right. get the call, you arrive, you adjust everybody's attitude, whatever that means, whether it's verbally, verbal judo, whether it's physically, um, you know, you have to adjust attitude and then you leave. This is now much more interpersonal, mm -hmm. which I, I find is, is um, much more gratifying to have mm -hmm. that. You, you fix it and you think it's all fixed and then you drive away and you, you're leaving these crushed and broken, you know, people and their lives behind you. And you think, oh, that was great. I just saved the day. But they're still in turmoil. They're still crying. They're still broken and, and you know, feeling abused and violated. Now, being in this position of walking people through and holding their hand and, and, and being there in that way, it's, it's just so much, so much better. So, yeah. Can we talk, having, can we talk about your, your, your coaching and your coaching career? Of course, yeah, yeah. And of course, I have a little self-serving thought in there. Yeah, early. And so we ended up moving to Spain. So from there, of course, working with people in Europe who really have zero interest for the most part in being healthy or, or changing their lifestyle, I was able to connect with some people on the Internet. Uh, one, one woman in particular who contacted me after seeing my Forks Over Knives write-up about the NASH, my, uh, my hepatitis, liver disease, she said, hey, you know, it's awesome that you're, you're, you're better. You're the first person I've seen, you know, who's actually healed their liver. She was on a liver transplant list. And she had been suffering from NASH much longer than I had. She was much more, um, uh, I guess, her liver disease had developed much more than mine had before I was able to change. So when she contacted me, I spent a lot of time with her. So the early parts of my coaching career, I would say I was basically mentoring. I was doing it for free. I had no interest in charging people. It was just me spending time on Skype with anybody who had questions and trying to guide them through. And she, long story short, ended up coming off the liver transplant list because of her connection with me and me 
really trying to emphasize the importance of going 100% plant-based because she was familiar with forks over knives and was kind of dabbling around the edges, playing around with, okay, let's, let me have a little bit more of this in my diet, and a little bit less of this. So having that success, it, it really helped me say, okay, yeah, this is what I need to start doing. And then uh, you came along, you entered my life, and, and I'm very grateful for that. I think you was uh, commented maybe on one of your posts. I'm not sure exactly what started. It was when Howard Jacobs had contacted me the first time. I had lost my mind. It was like, wow, this is incredible, this guy. You know, he's an author. He's, you know, he's one of these powerhouses in the, in the industry. Why, why are you talking to me? So my, my hammer of driving this message home which was very ineffective, you, you were able for me then to take that hammer out of my hand and show me, okay, you know what, this is a different way. You, you know, I did want to guide people through, but I was still like, okay, this is the only way to do it. So being connected with you and then eventually uh, meeting Josh and becoming, uh, and Kevin, of course, getting the training for the Wellstart coaching and learning this, this new it's not a new philosophy. It was for me that this new style of understanding the the journey that I dealt, the journey that I went through, that I'm that I was dealing with is, is similar, but also completely different than everybody else. Yeah, and has to come to that path in their own time and in their own way. Right, and now you know. Now you're one of our core Wellstart Health coaches, oh. and you know it's so it's so great working with you on a daily basis and some, something that, that. something that occurred to me during this conversation is like the thing that you bring fairly uniquely is a combination of all that stuff about you know understanding and empathizing and and, and holding people where they're at and a healthy dose of so what that and that's what I think I go back to that. And I think of that every day. I start to feel sorry for myself. And as you know, I'm, we're dealing with some family illness now. Uh, my mother has cancer. So I've been really immersed mm -hmm. in that. And it's been very difficult for me. I've had to put my life on hold again. Um, it's take this process has taken me away from my wife. It's taken me away from, you know, we're separated now, not in marriage, but by distance because I'm dealing with this and she's at home. Um, so it's it's also forced me back into that young, uh, those times when I was a young boy and a young man in that dynamic and, and forcing me to visit this family dynamic that, that was very raw for me. And having that so wet mentality, even knowing how it works, it's been very hard for me to, to deal with that. So, um, and with Wellstart and all the things I'm dealing with. So having that it's been very it's been very good for me mm -hmm. to say okay i'm changing what can be changed i'm helping family get through this time and this has been another healing process i've been going through so for me to i, I was kind of we talked about this before i think you and, and josh and i talked about how i was just the kind of guy when i decide to do something i just do it if it's important enough i'm going to do it i do it for as long as i want to and when i'm bored i don't do it anymore so for me having that that severe health issue that, okay, I'm facing death. This makes sense. Do it. I was trying to force that on other people. You know, look, you just have to do this. So what, what people mm -hmm. say about you, you know, Oh, I, I don't know what they're going to say 
to me at work if I don't, you know, eat what they bring in for me to eat or if I have to go out to dinner and they laugh at me because I'm ordering, you know, steamed vegetable sides. So what? What's more important? So that is where you have been so instrumental in, in this growth for me in this process. And I'm very grateful for that is that I can't be that person to everybody. Mm. It doesn't work for right. everybody. Some people eventually get there when they have all the tools and they're still not using them. You've, you and Josh and, and Olivia and everybody, we've, we've given them all the tools they need in their kit and they still aren't quite using them. Then maybe a little dose of so what, or a little bit of Josh in there just really landed on the line is perfect. And I, I appreciate that. Right. And, and and you get to say it when you've lived it like like as a philosophy, you know, don't feel sorry for yourself is an easy thing to say. And it's a very simple, you know, obvious thing, like don't try to change the things you can't change. And yet only by wrestling with it, by getting yeah. down in the mud for a long time, do we earn the right at, at certain times to, you know, to recognize when that person is you on the psychiatrist's in the psychiatrist's office, ready to hear it. Yeah. And that there's a fine line there. There really is. And, and it's something that you, you can't be very liberal with, of course. And, and you see it when it's there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to end um, on a very self-serving note, which is like, you know, you uh, I think you were a great coach when I met you. You had, you had you. Tr tremendous skills. You had great communication ability. You have all these technical skills and photography and, and cooking and lots of things to help people. And I saw a transformation in you going through the coach training program. We're going to be offering another one um, in the late fall, so like for first week of November. And I would I would just I'm really curious. And it's an advertisement. So, you know, everyone who's listening who's like, he can't do that. You know what? I don't have any sponsors. I don't take money from anyone. I can fucking do what I want. It's your show. So I, ooh, I don't know where that came from. I've been listening to too much Springsteen. Yeah, thanks for the recommendation on that book, by the way. I haven't gotten through nearly as much as I want to, but it's a, it's a great listen so far. Yeah, so, you know, another uh, oh, skinny Jersey boy grows up and wants to be hard ass. But anyway, what I would love is for you to talk about like what you got out of the coach training, um, like how it was useful, because I, I don't ask that often. I have a sense, but I'd love to I'd love to hear from you. And I'd love for people who are thinking of becoming coaches or who are coaches and would like to become better or who are health professionals and would like a coaching you know, toolkit to help their patients. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. And for me, that's an easy one. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like I said, I, I had one tool on my kid and that was my Warhammer. That was, hey, stop eating this crap. Eat this way. You're going to feel better. Your diabetes is going to go away. All these. And it just doesn't work. So uh, what I learned from from you, from you and Kevin and then through working with other people who had come in from from various lifestyles, people who had just finished their journey or maybe had been coaches or business coaches or health coaches. So all of us together in the group, it was really helpful to have uh, to, to experience this with other people, other points of view, other walks of life. You heard perspectives that maybe you weren't going to be exposed to in any other way. So all of that was, was really instrumental in, in establishing this, I don't want to call it a protocol, but your steps. I think the most important thing was for me was learning how to 
take people that were under duress, okay, emotional, physical, the dietary stresses we put ourselves on, and to hold them accountable, to, to teach them how to hold themselves accountable for what they were doing, to evaluate just even the smallest. It, it wasn't it wasn't the, the the macro, you know, it's getting into a little bit of the micro level of, okay, let's stop thinking about where you want to go. Yeah, you have your goal, you have your rules, you want to set, you want to lose weight, you want to do this, but what did you do today? What did you do in the last hour? Why did you do that? And if they couldn't answer, then the tools that we learn is to get them to recognize and to evaluate themselves and to, to start to hold themselves accountable, even in the smallest little step, and to understand that it's not all going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen tomorrow. This isn't going to be some, okay, you're going to wake up and you can't all be like Ron where he just says, screw it, I'm done, and it's fixed. So those baby steps, you know, I think you use the term of, you know, Olympian, uh, Olympic athletes don't become medal winners overnight. It's the training. It's the muscle memory. It's the, it's the habits that you form. So teaching people how to build those small habits has been huge and, and letting them or teaching them to learn how to evaluate that. Okay. What was I feeling? What was I thinking? What was I doing? You know, what conversation was I having with myself when X happened and what am I going to do next time? And you give them something that seems the most silly, ridiculous, you know, a post-it note or whatever, the smallest thing. And it be, can become so profound. And I think that's that's great. And, and I will say, and, and I wanted to do a little video on this and post it in the comment. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago when I jumped in on one of your calls unexpectedly uh-huh. just to kind of listen. And I love to check in on you, your calls, especially with you and Josh on it. Just listen and learn because just learning and watching you coach, uh, your mind comes from places that I never thought or never expected to be thinking and dealing with these people. So, and I wasn't supposed to be on the call for very long. I think I had like 20 minutes extra time and I just wanted to check in and listen. And I ended up staying for the whole call because just something was compelling me to go forward. And at the very end of that call, you were dealing with one of, one of the clients. And of course I won't go into a lot of detail, but she was dealing with a lot of heavy stuff, stuff in life that like, wow. And she's still functioning. She's here on this call today. She's being vulnerable. She's giving of herself. This is incredible. And when she started to share her body language, her energy was negative. The look on her face was just pure pain. The language she was using was very negative, self-deprecating. And you, I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be good. How's he going to, how's Howard going to deal with this? And you called her on it. It wasn't a handhold session. It wasn't one of these, you know, okay. You said, you know what? I'm going to stop you here. I'm going to check you on this language and what you're saying. And she tried to push back. And you said, no, 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 I'm, I'm not letting you off on this. And it was it was done in a very kind way. It was done in a very uh, supportive way with the community of the other people that were on the call. And I think we could all feel that. And within just a few short minutes, you got her energy to shift. And it was like a light bulb came on. Her face lit up. Her eyes went from being melancholy to there was a spark in there again. Her literally frown became a smile. I think she even chuckled a little bit. And just having those tools or learning that ability to take somebody, even when you're calling them on, you know, what they're saying and what they're doing to get them to realize, you know what, I'm feeling the worst I've felt in weeks. 
I just don't have the desire to do this anymore. Basically, I'm looking at all of these things that are just trashing my life right now to, wow, you know what? I am doing this. I'm still being successful. This is still working. This is great. And that was why I was on that call that day. I honestly believe I needed to see that and, and to feel that and to watch you work in that way and learning these tools from you. I would say if there's anybody out there that has any idea that you want to be a coach or you think you already are a decent mentor or a decent coach, the things you're going to learn through Wellstart are going to, are going to make that look pretty shabby in my opinion. So yeah, just that alone right there. I wish I could, I wish I could just isolate that moment and use that as a recruiting tool to watch <laughs> you work that magic on her and her energy shift and, and her language and her, the level of positive, you know, her positive mental attitude just went up just exponentially. Yeah. Well, th thank you so for, was, thank you yeah, for reflecting no, that back to me. It's, it's something that I, I learned from Josh, at least overtly, that coaching, the, the, the only thing we're trying to do in coaching really is to help people stop lying to themselves. <laughs> like once, once I understood that, then all the tools that I had suddenly were in service of, of like this, this transformative goal. Like that's like the basis of everybody's problem, including our own is where mm -hmm. we are lying to ourselves, where we're bullshitting ourselves. And it's so easy to see it in other people. Yeah. And it's so hard to see it in ourselves. And, you know, the skill of coaching is to we don't tell them where they're lying. We don't show them. We we kind of, you know, put them in a corner where they mm -hmm. where they just are suddenly faced with, oh, this that's not true or that's not the whole truth or that's not the empowering truth that I could be asserting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And not everybody will get it. Of course, you, you, you have to realize that or you know, people will come to that realization maybe much more slowly than others. So, you know, learning that. Right. Yeah. That's part, part of the skill that. is not is is not doing it before it's time. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're not all the same. We're not on the same mold. Clearly. So, and, and, you know, me also, another thing too, for me is through this training has been able to, and, and while I'm very happy in my life and things are going wonderfully well for me compared to, you know, many people or compared to things I dealt with in the past, it's life. It has its ups and downs. It's not all, you know, rose gardens. It's not all, you know, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm this euphoric life. It's real. Even for, for, for we coaches, it's, it's still very real. So, you know, like you say, where am I lying to myself right now? Thinking and putting myself under the microscope of Wellstart and, and that platform and, and those techniques and the breathing and, and the check-ins and the stress proofing and all that has been very helpful for me, especially these last, you know, this last year. Yeah, well, that's, so, that's the dirty secret of coaching is that we're yeah. doing it for ourselves. Doing it for ourselves, absolutely. It's like, you know, I checked in with you the other day. It was just nothing more like, you know what, I, I, I need a dose of Howard. I just need to see that, that face, those eyes, and, <laughs> and just listen to his voice and, you know, tell me everything's going to be okay. So, yeah, so it's all good. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I love my, like my, I think my favorite coaching time is like weeks two through five in Wellstart. Where because at first, the first couple of weeks, people are like making their plans, they're saying what they're going to do. And 
the, the most frequent theme I see through that is, you know, we'll ask them like, well, what could get in the way? They're like, well, you know, if everything goes great, I've got I'm confident. But, you know, if my boss does this or if there's extra work or if one of the kids is homesick, like people and I, you know, we're all this way, right? If, at some point, like I if that happens, then all bets are off. And to see mm -hmm. at least two through five people realize that no bet has to be off. Yeah, that, that you know, that there are if you make it a non negotiable, then most of life's hard knocks are not going to knock you down. Or if they do, you get right back up. Mm -hmm. And I love seeing people come to understand that around their health behaviors because they already understand it around their work and around yeah, exactly. taking care of taking care of other people. They're like, oh, well, you know, it's a bad my, it's a bad day at work today, so I'm not going to feed the kids tomorrow or exactly. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give them pop tarts and Coke like no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like to see people. That, yeah, yeah, that, that reality is and when you when you turn, we can we can use that on on that. It's like, OK, well, yeah, you, you weren't happy at work or this happened. So you just you're not going to go to work tomorrow then. Right. Well, I have to. Well, no, you don't. You don't have to. Well, yeah, I've got. So it's the same energy. It's the same thought process with you shouldn't eat that because, you know, it's not going to serve your your goal. It's not going to further your process. It's really that simple. Yeah, or it's really that that simple, maybe not easy for everybody. But when you get them thinking that way is there are many things you do in life that maybe you don't want to do necessarily, but you do it because it's for the better. And I would Regardless, argue and I would argue that all those things you don't want to do, you do want to do. You do want to do because it serves a greater purpose. It puts the roof over your head. It, it puts the food on your table. It allows you to have your weekends and family time and all those things. So, yeah, it's getting that shift in the the familiar and the comfortable and, and all the things that we've just surrounded ourselves with that make us feel all warm and fuzzy and replacing that with things that will still do that. We still eat amazing, beautiful, vibrant, flavorful food. It's just uh, it's serving a better purpose, you know. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like that shift. Shift happens. <laughs> All right, man. Any, anything else you want to drop on us oh, before, yeah. we, before we go? Yeah, I just could uh, we could talk forever. I mean, there's still you know, unpacking all of that. Uh, yeah, we haven't even gotten to most of your family drama, but I think we're going to leave that for, no, no, for, an, yeah, for another day. That's another day. I mean, it's just life. It's like everybody has yeah. their family drama. I, I consider it like, oh, why am I going through all this? But everybody has it. Everybody has illness. Everybody has family. So no, I think I think it, it in the meat of all of this is that I kind of grew up like a lot of people. I was Midwestern. I ate the things that we ate. I had the mentality, the same mindset that most people do. And just getting through life, navigating all of the, the all of that tr trauma, emotional and physical trauma that we all deal with is just coming to a place where you understand that. So what, you know, if you can change it and fix it, then work on that. If you can't and your life is not in immediate peril or someone you love is not like death is still on the table, you need to remove that. Then if it doesn't serve you, if it's a person, a place or a thing, then move away from that. It's really that simple. You have to understand that, you know, to, to be a better person, a better steward of, of yourself and your energy, you just have to try to remove all that negative and get the, you know, reduce the stress and, and learn, find those tools. And, and certainly WellStart 
as, as a client in a cohort as part of the program or as a well-start coach, you'll find that there. You'll find those tools and those abilities there if that's something you're interested in. And I would just suggest that to anybody. Just have your so what moment. If it doesn't serve you, then move on. And then concentrate on the things that do serve you. And I, I think uh, everybody can can just uh, experience a much better life. All right. Yeah. Well, Ron, thank you for dropping that. For oh, thank um, you. Come, come, comes from 55 years of life experience. It's, there's a lot there's a, there's a lot behind that that gentle offering. So I I appreciate it. Um, I'm so honored to be in your life and to be working with you on a, on a daily basis at Wellstart. And very, I know, I know, and I know this story is going to touch a lot more people. So uh, thank I you. Hope so and they can they can find me through Wellstart. They can find me on uh, on Facebook. If you have questions, reach out. If, uh, if, I, if I don't know the answer, we'll help you find the answer. I'm, I'm surrounded by uh, a wonderful, a wonderful group of people. And together, I know uh, if you've got uh, trauma or things that need to be fixed, we can we can help you with that. So thank you so much right. for the time. I really appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. I'll talk to you later. All right, sir. Enjoy your weekend. You too. All right. I hope you're inspired by Ron and that you have a little more faith and optimism about the state of the world and where it can go from here. So if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the mission of the show, you can subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also become a patron of this show just by going to Patreon and searching for yourself and becoming a monthly contributor that uh, helps take the burden off of me and uh, shows your commitment to the mission of the show. So if you're interested in doing that, thank you very much. You can also share today's show, and the URL for that is plantyourself.com slash 352. You can see the show notes. You can send other people there. You can see a nice photo of Mr. Tibbs and find a link to his profile story in Forks Over Knives and that interview that he gave to Jason Cohen for Big Change, the film, as well. If you're new to this show, you can catch up on hundreds of archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. I got some really good interviews lined up for the, the last weeks of 2019. Since they haven't happened yet, I'm not going to share them because I'm that superstitious. Uh, but they'll, they'll be good. And just uh, if you haven't yet subscribed on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or, or Apple uh, Google Play or Spotify or wherever the hell the podcasts are these days, uh, go do that. And that way you'll get it right into your podcast feed and you won't have to remember to go searching for it. All right. In garden news, there's literally almost no garden news. Everything is sort of static. We I don't think we covered up the plants. We had a little bit of a freeze last night, so we may go out and see if we can do some triage on the greens, bring some in. Uh, we're getting a, a Vitamix today. We left ours uh, with our daughter in Asheville, so we've been smoothie-less. For the past four days, it's been hard, but we, we we're, we're getting through. Um, and in running news, I did a good fast treadmill run on Sunday morning and then went and played an hour and a half of ultimate Sunday afternoon. So it felt like a good double digit day with a lot of uh, 
hard running. Yesterday was leg day, and today I'm just going to do some sort of long recovery run um, before I have to go uh, spend two and a half hours in the dentist chair getting a crown. Yay. All right, well, it's time for the gratitudes. Uh, thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Dawn, the Dance of Peace as the theme music for the show. Check out willridenauer.com for more. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolick, Sarah Durkis, Ramsey Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzik, Jeanette Bedden. <laughs> Gila Lacert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizo of Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth and Thunderberg, Misha Rosen, Michael Werbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergen, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Lashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, D.N. Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Kobel, Shell Rudless, Julian Watt, and Breeze O'Connell. Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Langholm, Hedda Gardy, Zatuzin Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Avivala L. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Cred, Pretanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelhood, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colin Harrison, Justine Divot, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly. Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casilla, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Lennon, Patty DiBartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Burrell, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullers, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Joan Borstein, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, and Sally Robertson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filikonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Viso, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, with Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzawa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski, a plant powered for health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Karts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.